Consider for a moment the state's rainy day fund from the budget. And now consider this question. What does a rainy day look like? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Wednesday, July 26th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, the Dakota political junkies talk appropriations, budget surplus, and big projects like prisons. We'll also ask what the public has a right to know about that Board of Regents whistleblower hotline and how do you measure the strength of a governor. We'll talk about voting rights in South Dakota and dig deeper into a new report's recommendations. We kick back under a shady tree with Eric Headland on a hot South Dakota summer day. Plus, chamber music in the Black Hills. That's coming a bit later in the hour. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Well, a few people in Guatemala are hearing life more clearly, thanks to my next two guests. Dr. Lindsay Jorgensen is a chair of and professor at the University of South Dakota's Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. Dr. Jennifer Phelan is the audiology clinic coordinator and an assistant professor of practice at USD, and they are both with me on the phone. Dr. Jorgensen, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Phelan, welcome as well. Thank you. Appreciate it. Lindsay, let's start with you. This is a a part of your practice, but it deepens your medical practice as well. Tell me about the trip and why you wanted to embark upon it. I've always wanted to go on a medical humanitarian mission, but it was really important to me that it included both the educational component that um, I'm really passionate about, both uh, for our students as well as the larger audiology community, Further, I really wanted to ensure that any medical mission that I embarked on really included the follow-up care that I feel is incredibly necessary for medical missions, as well as providing services at the top of our practice using best practices. Talk a little bit more about follow-up care. Why is that important and why does it sometimes not happen in medical humanitarian trips? So medical humanitarian trips are often, um, you know, those places where we feel really good about going in and making a difference, and and often we make a difference there in the moment, but we really want to make sure that having that long-term care and that sustainable care is is there, and that was something that this mission had, and so it was really important to me, especially when you think about something like hearing aids that require ongoing care ongoing maintenance of the device, as well as ongoing programming and testing to ensure that those devices are working correctly. Jennifer, tell me a little bit about what a day was like. Who arrived? How did they get there? What kinds of needs did they have? Absolutely. Um, So this trip was, um, it was amazing to see the variety um, of need we were able to see. We saw children um, as young as three years old, um, all the way up to individuals who um, were much older. And so a day really was... um, it varied, and you just you didn't know. Um, hmm. We started we started at 8 a.m. with clinic. We went straight through until we saw all the patients who were scheduled for the day. Um, and so, you know, we had to go in in being flexible, and it really um, ex- made us dig deep into you know what I always say to our students is their toolbox, right? There it wasn't um, rote. There was no script for this. You talked to a person, you determined what they needed, and then something that we might do here in the states over say three visits 
we were doing in one day. Um, and so we, we did everything we, we could while we had them there because people did travel for many hours um, to get to us. And so um, I, we were hearing people um, took them as long as three to five hours walking for a few hours then taking a bus um, to get to get to us to get to the clinic and the care that they needed. And Dr. Phelan, what kind of impact would it have on people's lives? What sorts of stories were you hearing that this would make a difference for them? Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was amazing to hear the stories. When we got together with the team at the end of the day, we would talk about them. Um, everything from um, a woman who was so thankful that she would be able to keep her job um, because she was able to hear again to um, a child who was going to be able to go back to school um, because they weren't hearing well and were then being disruptive. They were actually told that um, they there was no they shouldn't attend and they were going to get to go back to school um, because they were uh, because they had the hearing aids. Um, wow. um, and it, yeah, it was it was just it was really incredible. You know, to families who you know their children being able to um, being able to communicate with them or to being able to know that they were getting um, you know that input. So the impact was. Um, was really phenomenal. Dr. Jorgensen, one of the challenges with taking trips like this is always the return. How do you reflect and give reflection a proper time and space in your life? And how do you integrate what you learned into into your practice here at home? Tell me a little bit about that process for you. You know, that was something I hadn't really considered when I when I went on this trip is, you know, coming home and and luckily I had, you know, Jennifer with with me and we had a very similar experience and yeah. and one of the other professors um here in our department has also gone on a on a medical mission and so I I didn't really anticipate um that kind of feeling of coming back and people not understanding that I, I think that coming at it from a little bit of a of a different perspective, coming from um, a husband that had been returned from war, which is obviously a very different experience, but coming back and having to come back into a society that didn't necessarily understand the gravity of some of the situations that we experienced was quite difficult. And I know that um, Jennifer and I definitely had a lot of conversations about how we would integrate some of those things that we learned. But I think, honestly, one of the things that I learned the most is that if I'm able to provide the best practices in a remote village in Guatemala, it is definitely something that we should expect here in in the United States. And it's something that I continue to push in our profession and push with our students. Hmm. Final thoughts, uh, Dr. Phelan, what do you want to add to that? I'm thinking now about rural South Dakota and all the places where it might be very difficult to get to services and people have to travel a long way. And, and yeah, what's the impact going forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the the impact really is, it's like what um, Lindsay said, is we need to um, be creative for these kinds of things here at home as well. Um, You know, our clinic actually does do um, an outreach trip every semester with our graduate clinicians. Um, We have some other services where we do um, teleservices. And how can we expand those? And how can we make sure that um, we are providing the hearing health care that is necessary for the for people back at home, um, just like we're able to do with a larger group down in Guatemala. And so I think, you know, a lot of times we can get set in our ways, and this is what we do, and this is how we do it, and that's, um, you know, your your you know Monday through Friday, um, kind of that grind. And a trip like this just really opens everything up and helps you realize. 
you can be flexible. You can think outside the box. And there's a group of people you can do this with because that's what it is. We all have to partner together. Mm. Dr. Lindsay Jorgensen and Dr. Jennifer Phelan, both connected to the University of South Dakota. We appreciate your time so much. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. A recent report took a deep dive into voting access in South Dakota. It asked a tough question. Does every South Dakotan have equal access to their right to vote, particularly in reservation country? The report was released by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and its South Dakota Advisory Committee. Travis Lettler is chair of the Bipartisan State Advisory Committee. He's an economics instructor at the University of South Dakota, and he is seated in SDPB's Vermilion's studios on the campus of USD. We'll talk a little bit about the report's findings and recommendations. Welcome. Thanks for being here, Travis. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about the South Dakota Advisory Committee and the report that we recently finished. This report is so fascinating, and it is uh, quite a compelling history lesson as well. And of course, you know, we could talk for hours about it, but help me ground for listeners who are sort of new to why it might be difficult for Native Americans to feel like they have um, equal access to the ballot Sure. This is a this is an old story that you have laid out here. This is you know through lots of different legal actions. What what stands out to you to help people kind of ground themselves in the conversation? The important thing to ground ourselves in is that the role of these state advisory committees to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights is that our role is to be the boots on the ground in individual states and territories and to really listen to the lived experiences and the stories of the people um, who feel affected um, by these issues. And our committee in South Dakota, for the last two years, we worked on a topic on voting rights and access in South Dakota. And once we chose that topic as a committee, we had to focus down on what does that look like? What does that mean? And we chose to look at three impacted populations in South Dakota, uh, non-English speakers, people with disabilities, and American Indians who live in tribal areas and reservations in South Dakota. Um, so we heard testimony from a variety of impacted individuals and also experts. And so what this report does is, with respect to each of these three impacted populations, we listen to their stories, we listen to the common themes that arise, and then we develop recommendations. These are non-binding recommendations that go to the U.S. Congress, they go to um, the state uh, governor, the state legislature, they go to local municipalities, basically saying this is what we heard and here are some ways that we think we can address these issues in a cost-effective way, in an easy way, that can alleviate some of the concerns that we heard. Um, and uh, like, again, on this topic, was with respect to when people show up to vote. Yeah, I want to jump in here because you, you mentioned the lived experiences and the heartfelt testimony. 
one of the things that stood out to me in the report are remarks from Destina Gill. I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right, but she's a voting rights advocate from Sisseton Wapaton, and she talked about this notion of polite racism. I'm going to quote her comments here. It's not enough to put your finger on it, but we know what it is when you walk through and they're visiting with someone who's voting in front of you, and they're all talking and laughing, and then it's your turn to go up, and then there's silence. Nobody says a word, and you just feel intimidated. You feel wrong, and a lot of people aren't going to put themselves in that situation unless they know somebody's going to accompany them. That just breaks my heart to think of someone going into a polling place and feeling wrong. How do you take a lived experience, a heartfelt story like that, and then broaden it to say, is this systemic? Is this happening to a lot of people? It, how do we, how do you address something like a feeling? That's a great um, observation. And one of the highlights or one of the, I don't want to call it a rule, but one of our principles on an advisory committee is that we never question a person's lived experiences or what they share with the committee. We take everything that we hear at face value because the people who are um, willing to come speak with us and the people who are willing to testify, they know their lives and they know their experiences better than we do. And so when we hear stories of people who feel that um, they've been uh, discriminated against, or there's that feeling of alleged discrimination, or that feeling of an alleged deprivation of voting rights, that falls directly in the context of what the state advisory committees are charged with looking at. Yeah. And so this is a group that is charged with discussing and dealing head-on with some really heavy topics, and that does include discrimination. And this is hard work, and it takes a mental and emotional toll. And so our committee is designed so that everyone can participate fully and have their voices heard. We, we hear uncomfortable things, and we have uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. But we are so grateful to those people um, who are willing to speak to us. And I'm also grateful to all of our committee members who showed up to every meeting to work together through some of these really complicated and emotional issues to, to draft not only what we heard from our, um, our, uh, the, our panelists, the people who spoke with us, but also to, to, to draft these recommendations and come to a consensus. Yeah. I want to pull out just two of the recommendations here, which are non-binding, again, but two that I think people in the context of how much time we have will get their minds around fairly quickly. And the first one is this, um, the recommendation that the South Dakota Secretary of State's office designs just a one-page infographic on how to vote. Information that can be placed with all county auditors' offices and voting elections, something that will tell you you don't need an ID, you have to sign an affidavit if you don't have an ID, other relevant information. This seems like a very basic suggestion, and I guess my first question is, that doesn't already exist. <laughs> like, how are people navigating that now if there's not even something as simple as a, you know, a poster so, that you would expect, like how to wash your hands, how to vote? All of uh, that information is on the Secretary of State's website. 
one of the themes that we heard from, again, this is kind of across those three impacted populations, people with disabilities, as well as non-English speakers, as well as uh, American Indians living um, in tribal and reservation areas. The, the number one finding in our report, and a, a finding is just a fancy way of saying a common theme that we heard over and over again, right. was confusion over South Dakota's voter ID requirements. Because one of the interesting things that I myself learned in this process is that South Dakota does not have early voting. In South Dakota, we only have absentee voting. And one of the reasons that's confusing is because I think for so many of us, when there's an election coming up, we all, so many of us go to the courthouse early and vote. Yeah. But technically, we are absentee voting. We're, you know. Sure, yeah. And so if you go to the Secretary of State's website, part of the confusion is it, there's a section that says, do you need an ID to vote? And it says, yes, you do. Here are the valid IDs. And then slightly farther down on the page, it says, you do not need an ID to vote. You can fill out, South Dakota has an affidavit process, where if you do not have an ID, then you can fill out an affidavit and you can still vote. And I think, and uh, one of the things I heard and that the committee put into our report is, what if the South Dakota Secretary of State did a very simple one-page infographic like you described that would just be that would just say here to vote question mark do you have an ID question mark yes no if not you know and it would be a very simple explanation um, that would be at every county auditor's office and every polling location it would um, involve a cost obviously to You'd have to print these infographics, but I think it's a minimal cost. When you compare it against the benefits and reducing the amount of confusion and frustration on voting day, yeah. um, not just on the part of a voter who shows up and says, you know, I, I don't have my driver's ID, my driver's license with me, or I don't have a valid uh, ID with, at all. It would also reduce confusion on the part of the poll workers and the and some county auditors who can be confused by um, the conflicting rules. Mm. And the last thing I'll say about that is all of this information is on the Secretary of State's website. But if you don't have access to technology, if you live in an area that has spotty Internet or no Internet at all, you might not feel like navigating through several web pages to find that one little paragraph that answers your question. Travis Lettler is chair of the Bipartisan State Advisory Committee, and he's also an economics instructor at the University of South Dakota. We've been talking about this report by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and its South Dakota Committee. Travis, we'd love to have you back uh, during the election season, if that's not already started, I don't know, to talk more about this, but we really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me on, and I'm so grateful to our advisory committee.
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, this very morning, the Interim Committee uh, Appropriations Committee met to evaluate the fiscal year. So how did this fiscal year stack up? Our Dakota political junkies are with us for an update. And with a few more political news headlines, we have gathered from around the state. John Hunter is publisher emeritus of the Madison Daily Leader. He's a member of the South Dakota Newspaper Hall of Fame. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks, Lori. And Mike Card, political scientist and professor emeritus at the University of South Dakota. Dr. Card. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Try again. I'm glad to be there. here. Lori has to remember to turn the microphone on <laughs> in the studio. Otherwise, all systems break down. Okay, Interim Appropriations Committee. John Hunter, let's start with you. Help people understand what this committee does and what they were doing just this morning. Great. Um, so South Dakota, uh, you know, the legislative session runs uh, early in the year, and they uh, set a budget for the coming fiscal year, which in South Dakota starts July 1st and ends June 30th. And now you see we're three weeks past the end of the fiscal year. And so they get a report from the state staff, paid staff. It said, gee, how do we do on budget this year? And uh, the, the news is great. Let's, uh, you know, as journalists, we want to know more and be sometimes skeptical. But the truth is uh, surpluses are better than deficits. Um, a lot of other states have deficits and they have to scramble. South Dakota had a relatively small surplus, but but it's almost always on the positive side. And the reason, part of the, part of the reason, it was a relatively small surplus. They they realized during this last session, uh, the 2023 session, that there was going to be a bigger surplus, and went ahead and made an adjustment for that and set aside some money for Department of Corrections. So all in all, I think it's good. South Dakota is in great financial shape. Um, excess cash. Uh, of course, the pandemic was a big part of that, too. And they were able to, it, it really helped the regular budget, too, because you were able to spend some pandemic money on things that you might have spent regular state money on later. Nothing, I wouldn't say anything was illegal, but you'd say, look, we were going to spend a lot of money on this anyway. The, the feds came in and, and did this. So I think we have to start out right by recognizing that this that the state has a good budget process and it's healthy and it's conservative. We could argue quickly that we should be spending more money on important things uh, instead of having surpluses. But overall, I'd rather be in a surplus position than a deficit. All right. So how much surplus is a good surplus? Where do you want to? And Mike Card, you have some historical <laughs> numbers. You know, let's look at the everything. percentages and what we have decided. Because we get to choose. That's not like we have to budget the state. We have to balance the state budget every year. That's required by law. Right. We don't have to have a certain, or do we? Is there well, a minimum we, surplus that we have to have, or reserve fund? Well, there's actually a maximum surplus that we oh. can have. And didn't know that. Well, uh, all of the the unobligated funds at the end of the year go into our state's reserve funds. We have two of those. We have a number of other uh, re, I, reserve funds. Isn't the right term? They're trust, trust funds. funds trust okay. funds, where we can only spend the principal out of those. Or, or excuse the interest. Wow. <laughs> I must be talking into a mirror. I'm looking at it backwards. <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, th there's another feature that we have is that if the legislature during its session realizes that we're not going to have money to pay our bills through the rest of the year, they must impose a statewide property tax, oh. which we haven't had since 1932 or thereabouts. But so, you know, 
So yay for the surplus. <laughs> yes, yay for the surplus. <laughs> okay. And, and I remember back in 1998 when Bill Janklow during snow emergencies said, uh, you know, we have rainy day funds. If it's not raining now, when when will it be raining? And I think that's that's the ultimate question. Are we using our rainy day funds for their stated purposes or are we using rainy day funds to park money that we didn't spend? If there is a nefarious purpose to it, which I don't know that there is, it's we will put money in the rainy day funds so that we don't spend it. Sure. Which, you know, can be for good or ill purposes. Uh, the good purpose is so that we have we only spend one time money, things that are not a continuing revenue stream, and we budget for a continuing revenue stream as opposed to, oh, look, we have a, a windfall such as we had this year with uh, one of our sources of revenue, the uh, the one that deals with unclaimed property. Right. And otherwise, when is it raining? That's when just the raining? ultimate yeah. question. What did you want to add, there John? Was, there, there was some, just following up on Mike, there was a time when the governor had the authority to spend some of those excess funds before the year was over. So if you're coming up Close to the end of the year, you saw a surplus. The governor could spend that, and Janklow did. On remember wiring the schools and providing laptops and those sorts of things. All of a sudden, he'd go to Gateway and buy ten million dollars <laughs> worth of get of laptops at the end of the year. That can't be done anymore. All right. So percentage wise, what is well percentage of, of the money that's in the reserve funds? Well, we have a two point four billion dollar general fund budget. And we had a surplus of about hundred plus hundred hundred million dollars, roughly. Yeah. So the the amount of the surplus is pretty pretty small. Okay. Uh, so prisons and rainy day funds. What do you want to say about that? I, like, I can think we can we build <coughs> a prison with a rainy day fund? I guess that when we talk about like what does a rainy day look like, does it look like a big project like that? Well, a special appropriation bill requires a two-thirds vote of each committee and each chamber of the legislature and to be signed by the governor to, to have a specific purpose of, of an appropriation. Otherwise, it's for the general operations of the state and its public institutions. But those obligations can run for four years. They can also be renewed for four years, but it requires a two-thirds vote for a special appropriations bill. So... It would seem to me, to Mike Card, that we don't want to park that money in a in a trust fund, except it may those those reserve excuse me in a reserve fund because the reserve funds we know are going to be there for a while, and we may invest them in longer term investments in which we can gain more additional revenue in that sense. Yeah. Otherwise, if we want to build a prison, we should appropriate the money. We should for plan a for it. Yeah. John? Yes, and that's uh, that special appropriation is the key element because big projects like this that are kind of multi-year, the legislature specifically doesn't want to commit future legislators to their decisions. So that's why they require the two-thirds here to say, hey, this the prison thing is a perfect example. And yes, it's not a rainy day thing, but it is, a, it is an obligation of state government that is going to need to be funded. And so... <laughs> They, they pass those with that purpose. I also want to go back to this idea of like a surplus is better than a deficit. Obviously, they have to balance it, but it's better than being in big trouble. But a surplus is not just don't spend anything and let's keep it all and let's park it all. Right. Uh, some things didn't get spent because there weren't enough 
people to spend them in some ways. John, what do you want right. to add about about what didn't get spent that was allocated for spending? Right, and you bring up a great point, Lori, and that is not all surpluses are good. In this case, as you uh, indicated, there were two main departments that that didn't spend that contributed to most of that surplus: the Department of Social Services and Department of Health. And so the big, and my thing that the big red flag that pops out of that is Yankton and the uh, Human Services Center there, where they are understaffed. They did have a little lower caseload than they did, and that's that can contribute to that too. But they'd much rather have fully staffed and have safer working conditions and have better care for the uh, patients there than to show up with some money that gets reverted back to the general fund. That mm-hmm. so. So yes, you know, good sound budgeting and so forth pays off in surpluses, but you know, they appropriate this money for a reason and it, you know, good reasons and it should have should have been spent if we could have. So when I get to this idea cuz you're talking about unemployment and you know, our unemployment rate is uh, famously low. Governor Kristi Noem is touting that as, you know, part of something she's proud of as her success <coughs> story as a governor. Uh, the great reserve fund that is, you know, she's saying that is a great thing. Businesses coming in, the Freedom Works Here campaign, bringing lots of applications. And then, of course, there's a, a um, article in South Dakota Newswatch that talks about her not having a consistent chief of staff and how that would impact lawmakers. And so my big philosophical question is, how do you measure the success of a governor? Um, Certainly every governor is going to want to lead with the things they say they're successful. Opponents of that governor are going to lead with the places that they felt the governor fell short. But for the everyday people of South Dakota, how do we measure the success of our current governor? Well, a a governor is really in a tough spot because in the one sense, We'd like to never know what our governor is doing because everything is running smoothly. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, a, a governor may have political ambition. I'm speaking of extremes here. May have political ambitions elsewhere and want to show, either for re-election purposes or for another office, that they're accomplishing great things. And to some extent, it's a tough job. I, I don't. I think to every extent, it's a tough job because you're trying to balance many things. But in terms of what we spend our money on and what we're trying to accomplish, how do we define well-being for the state? How yeah. do we define? And and if we're not ready to able, ready and willing and able to make expenditures and change policies to correct some of those problems, then we focus on short-term outcomes, like we got our unemployment rate down, we have a budget surplus. I was thinking, John, to that note, uh, we just ran a history piece earlier this week about uh, Governor Dick Knipe, you know, resigning and leaving to become ambassador to Singapore, and then uh, uh, Governor Woolman replacing him, and the, the history piece is really looking at, like, these are the key things that we remember about Knipe, and the key things we remember are about Woolman, and that's what they're known for. And I thought, oh, f- flash forward 50 years, what are the key things that we'll remember about Dugard? What are the key things we'll remember about Nome? Um, history is a fickle thing. Like, you know, we but get it's, to, it's we get, well, some, someday people will have a, a piece and they'll pull out what her greatest accomplishments were and what they see her failures to be. What sticks to you so far that you see? Well, that's the fun part. And it is fun to look back and see those because you gain perspective, you see, can, can make it other comparisons. But specifically to the question, 
you know, ultimately, and Mike Rounds could articulate this pretty well, what is the responsibility of government? And that has to do yeah. with, you know, there's an education component, um, there's a care for people who can't help themselves component, there's all these things. But a lot of economies, whether it's, uh, excuse me, a lot of states or other jurisdictions, do measure their success based on how the economy does in those areas. And it's, remember the, the Clinton-Bush campaign, it's the economy, stupid, right? <laughs> and so that turned out to be a big deal. And, and so, so far, I think, I think you can measure uh, Governor Noem's first four and a half years as saying it's been an economic success, whether that was due to the pandemic, whether it was due to previous administrations, who knows what it was due to, but that will stick with with her as a success, unless it tanks for the next three years. But Right, but I, we're not done yet right. by any means, but right. yeah. But I think the economy has been strong and the and state government has had a good fiscal responsibility, so I think so far that would stick. Yeah, everybody who is in public service during the pandemic is going to be held up against that measure. Who lived, who died, who lost work, what businesses closed, um, you know, how did you fare? And that's just going to be interesting to yeah, see in the future how we how we measure that in retrospect when you've forgotten the. I went back the other day and looked at some of the columns that I wrote during the height of the pandemic, and they're so intensely sad. And I thought, boy, I've almost forgotten how difficult that. I mean, I almost I had almost forgotten when the hog farmers couldn't get their hogs to market and they had to depopulate their herds. And I wrote about this the heartbreak of that overwhelming me at the time. And I was like, boy, I needed to read that I had written that hmm. to remember that it had happened. Now, the hog farmer has not ever forgotten, but for those who weren't living that close to it. So I don't know what sticks 20 well, years from now. Do you remember the, the COVID maps that was uh, the National uh, Institute of Health or someone published? And you'd see, here's it, and they would have different colors for COVID cases and deaths. Yeah. So if you were a particularly dark color or something, you had more deaths per hundred thousand than. And I remember feeling sad about that. That you say, you know, our state at, at times had higher COVID rates than others, but you know, two years hence, I don't remember that very much. I, at least I've kind of put it back. But there were a lot of there was a lot of suffering during that pandemic that, yeah. and it varied by state, and not always because of politics, but because of demographics or something else. Well, we have lots more to talk about, but we're going to have to leave it here. I really want to go back to the whistleblower um, in a piece in the Brookings Register about public requests, records requests. So, John Hunter, you'll come back and talk to us about that. And, boy, we just have so much Can't that wait. we left on the table today. <laughs> more later. John Hunter, Mike Card, thanks for being here. Thanks, Lori. Thanks, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, I hope you are enjoying today's heat advisory. Um, actually, I hope you're staying safe today, drinking lots of water, staying indoors if you can. But if you have to go out or work outside, stick to the shade, perhaps shade tree. the shade of a tree. That's right. <laughs> and while you're enjoying the slightly cooler temps under that tree, you might start thinking about paying it forward. Eric Helland is president and owner of Landscape Garden Centers in Sioux Falls, and he's with me here in the studio to talk about bringing trees and shade to your life. Ugh. Yes. Welcome. It's hot. Yes. And walking down the street yeah. um, to your studio, it was just, it's, it was really kind of, I was like thinking, oh, wow, this is exactly what we're going to talk about. You walk underneath from shade 
sun, shade, sun. And there is a remarkable difference yeah. in the temps just in air temp. Now, if you're sitting underneath a tree today with the breeze, slight breeze, it's not, I mean, it isn't that bad. It's not that it's bad. bad. It's but bad. It's bad. <laughs> it, yeah. But just remember January. That, just think I just January. thought that think last January. night I went think outside and it was snow. just like a blanket of humid air at night. Yes. And it felt fantastic, frankly, because I wasn't like working. I was just right. standing outside in the moonlight. And I thought, oh, I'm going to remember this moment in January. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So if we could bottle up some of that and just use a little, yeah. All right. So Let's talk about planting trees that are shade trees, because in, I have one of those older neighborhoods. I'm just dealing with the, the tree roots in the sewage line this past weekend. Oh, and yeah. a lot of people are talking about planting shorter trees. So yeah. are we planting big, tall trees? Are we planting shorter trees? No, you What's plant, the you both? You gotta plant, yeah, you plant both. But there's certain places for certain trees, right? Sh shade mm -hmm. trees. I mean, this goes back a long ways where people were planting trees to protect their homes from um, from the summer sun. And then also the tree would then lose its leaves and then it would allow the winter sun to warm the house. Yeah. And that's how a lot of things have been built. Shelter belts. I mean, shelter belts were designed to basically help uh, slow the wind down um, and create to where you could walk outside and not lose your anything that you're carrying, right? Right. And um, help with erosion. And so planting trees is just a huge thing because it helps, I mean, trees in general, they help cool the air, clean the air, um, and they're and slow the wind down. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love those big established trees. I would have a yeah. very hard time moving to a neighborhood that did not have established trees. Do you have, mm -hmm. when they get old like that, do you have to worry about them coming down, the health of them? Um, well, that's a good question. So typically, most shade trees, I mean, so we've let's talk about the ash tree, right? Yep. Most ash trees have been removed or treated. There are, there's a thousands of them here in Sioux Falls, and they do and a great job. My allergies are going away. Oh, really? I'm allergic to ash trees. Oh, okay. And it's measurably Reducing. better. Okay. As we, I'm not happy that people have lost their ash right. trees, but I have... Right. So replacing them with another shade tree. Pick something else, important. people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But basically, you know, shade trees are so important to any type of um, community. Um, when you don't have anything right now, I mean, the places that are shaded, it's just so much more pleasant. It's cooler. People park their vehicles underneath yeah. what the, the tree because it provides shade and your car's a lot cooler when you come back to it. So, um Small trees, big trees, little trees, green trees. I mean, they're all very valuable in their in the right place. My grandmother had a tree taken down when she was 90 because it had to be. I don't remember why it had to be, but it had to be. And she planted a new one. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, that's just nice. Yeah. That's Clearly, she did not did. live to see that tree. Um, she didn't get to sit under that tree since she only planted it when she was 90. Right, she yeah. lived to 93. What uh, what do we leave behind when we leave behind a tree on property that we can plant trees on? Yeah, so, I mean, you kind of leave a legacy. I mean, it's just something that's there. It can't, I mean, nothing can really be changed about it, right? You can't go paint it like a house. can't yeah. change the windows or remodel it. So it becomes a part of the, it's a fixture. It's a piece of art. If, especially if it's in the front yard, because then that creates curb appeal for whatever the house, whatever type of house. Yeah. Uh, it's so a friend yeah. for your children. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> lots of books about it. Maybe you. Yes. Yep. <laughs> All right, go hug a tree today. Eric Helen, thank you so much. We stay appreciate cool. your time. And stay cool. Stay safe if you're working outside, for sure.
Thanks. Music and education have always been deeply intertwined. The Chamber Music Festival of the Black Hills takes that idea and lifts it up through classical concert series and free educational programming. Michael Hill is executive director of the Chamber Music Festival of the Black Hills, and he is with me from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital studio there in Rapid City. Michael Hill, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Lori. Big fan of all your programming and all your work. Pleasure to be here today. Thank you. That's a very kind thing to say. You have this uh, really successful program going on right now. Tell us what's already happened and some of the response, and then we'll talk about festival favorites coming up. Okay. Um, well, the festival has been going extremely well. Um, it's uh, year after year. It keeps getting better, and this year was no exception. Um, we've been doing, we started off in June with our Discovery of Strings and Harp program. This is a program from area Title I schools in the area of General Beetle and Knollwood. We, uh, Knollwood joined us this year. It's an in- instrumental program. We were fortunate recipients of a grant several years ago where we purchased nine violins, four violas, a cello, And we started our first instrumental program, working with these kids, introducing them to music, and getting them involved. And then my wife was telling a friend of hers in Florida about this program. And he said, you know, I've got about 150 harps in my house. How about, how would you like to take five of them out to the Black Hills? And we brought the band down and loaded it up and said, thank you. Uh, and uh, started the harp program also. And these kids just love it. They have so much fun. It's building their interest in music and other extracurricular activities. So the idea is to get them involved in music and extracurriculars. uh, It keeps them in school. It addresses issues of truancy throughout the specific areas. Um, And students who participate in these programs, they have uh, a natural aptitude to head towards science and engineering. So I teach during the winter at the University of Central Florida, and a majority of my students are double majors of music and engineering. Mm-hmm. They utilize music either to go on professionally or um, as a scholarship opportunity to pay for their education. Yeah. And so there's a deep tie between the two. And so in getting these kids involved from an early age, it helps their brain development uh, and teaches them social skills, leadership skills, and it's been going exceptionally well. So then we also had our... I'm going to jump in here and talk about, you know, just access and inclusion because the free educational programs, you talk about a harp, you know, not everybody everybody can buy that or the car to transport (laughs) the harp to practice. So the idea of just having uh, people who love classical music step up to invite kids from all financial backgrounds into that space. Tell me a little bit about the value of that for you. Well, that's, that's it. That's the value of it, and it, it, it sparks an interest. And the brain development of children at that age expands extremely quickly. Their cognitive skills increase, their ability to learn. And as I explained to the kids, well, why are we doing this? And I said, well, one, it's fun, isn't it? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm having a great time. And uh, I said, but it's going to make your school uh, and your academics much easier. And it's like, wait a minute, so playing a violin makes school easier? I said, yes, you learn faster. So uh, at the college level, I can tell immediately with that student um, whether or not they had these kind of programs as a child or not. 
because the amount of times that I have to repeat myself, fix this, fix that, fix that, you know, there's nothing worse that a teacher wants to do and except to continue to say, you know, that's a B flat, uh, that's a B flat. <laughs> oh, by the way, did you notice that that's a B flat you're not playing? Yeah. So it gets to, but it goes on to the workplace also. So if you're an employer and you've got people working for you, um, do you want to give them instruction continually or do you want to give it once? They learn it, they move on, and they do a great job. I feel so like the, the other intertwining theory to that as a parent of a cellist who is now uh, beyond college and not playing cello right now, but is that bow hold? Because it just seemed like no matter when you thought you got the <laughs> bow hold right, somebody was going to come along and they were going to change your bow hold, which I thought was also a good lesson for life. Is it sometimes you have to return back to, you know, like B flat is B flat. Um, yeah. But sometimes you have to return back to the fundamentals of technique and yeah. mastery. Yeah, and, and, and that's why the harp works so well um, for the kids with sensory disabilities and sure. other issues like that because the strings are color-coded. And the technique is it's very important, and we explain the technique and why, why you have to do it this way because it'll make everything else function and give you the ability to learn, uh, to learn more and play more. We've been talking um, a lot so about AI on this show lately, and one of the things mm -hmm. that comes up as a theme is, is, you know, what do you lose if you don't do the work? What do you lose in mastery and creativity and self-expression if you're not doing the process? And I think that you just answered that question from a musical standpoint. Like, sure, you could maybe program a computer to spit out a comp composition, but you cannot do the brain development of a human child in quite exactly. the same way without them yeah. sitting there with the real instrument in your hand yeah. that we know yeah, of. Exactly. Unless there's yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. And one child was having a hard time with the, with the exercise we were working on in the piece, and, uh, and he was getting frustrated. And I said, well, you play video games, don't you? And he said, yeah. I said, the first time you started the game, did you immediately win? He said, no, I had to learn it. And I said, and then it was fun, right? And he said, yeah, once I learned it, it was fun. I said, the same uh, theories apply here. That's why the discussion of AI skips over that step. Yeah. All right. Festival favorites coming up July 28th and 29th. Tell me about that. Yeah. This, so this is our final program or what I call the finale. Um, we, we are at the Journey Museum in the Adelstein Gallery uh, Friday and Saturday uh, at 7 p.m. The concert is dedicated to basically uh, our our artistic directors, my wife, Don Marie Edwards, and these are her favorite pieces. Mm. So it starts off with a piano quintet by Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Um, it's a beautiful work composed back in the 18, late 1800s. Um, has not received much recognition until of recent. Uh, people are re-exploring these works, and it's just a beautiful work. It's a masterful work. And then we have compositions by Philip Klass that people will recognize from their favorite movies, Truman, and a variety of other movies where these works show up. Now, in talking with the audience, we also share that our programs are not your typical classical concert. And I always don't like to use the word classical because we also implement other aspects, other forms of music. So we're also uh, including Simon and Garfunkel, Sounds of Silence. And it's a beautiful demonstration of the cellist that we have with us, uh, Grace Bong. And it's just a beautiful work for piano and cello. And then, the, then we'll uh, go to a Tchaikovsky Adagio Molto that features the harp and strings. And then the program concludes with the, what is considered as the father of Russian music, Glinka. Glinka wrote this, the Grand Sextet. Now, it doesn't sound Russian because he composed it at a time when he was living in Italy. And he was learning, uh, he was studying Italian opera. 
So it's a small ensemble of players, six players, but it sounds like Italian opera. And it's nice and rich, and it sounds like symphonic works at points. And then it features the pianist. It's one of the more brutal uh, piano works in the repertoire. Um, so it's an exciting concert. I think everyone's really going to enjoy it. The setting is perfect. Audience members have been telling us how much they enjoy the intimacy of being close to the music, close to the musicians, um, how the program is designed. It brings the audience into the music and into the concert. I love that. Michael Hill, the uh, festival favorites, July 28th and 29th, 7 p.m. at the Journey Museum. We'll put links up on our website so you can find access to tickets and any information that you need. But we appreciate you coming in. It's always a delight to have you. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the time. Greatly appreciate it. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you. Tomorrow we're going to talk about Lakota language learning in South Dakota. We'll get to know the new South Dakota National Barrel Racing Champion winner. Nate Weck will bring you that story. Kevin Wooster is with us. And uh, we'll also talk about wheat and science coming out of SDSU. All kinds of stuff on tomorrow's In the Moment. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I am Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. <laughs>